everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. This is one of our Ask Me Anything follow-up episodes, where we answer the remaining questions from the AMA time after our Sunday service. You'll hear from Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Jill Reese, his Content and Ministry Coordinator. If you're interested in the resources or Bible passages that they talk about, we've listed it all in the show notes. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. So we are following up from the Ask Me Anything from Sunday, September 27th. Um, We have a few questions that are unrelated to the sermon, and then we'll get into some of what Nick didn't get to talk about in the sermon after that. So first question for you, Nick, did Christ pay for healing in the atonement? Um, That, I think that question is, Kobe, you could go at that a number of different ways. Like in one sense, you could say yes, because in making the way for us to be re-related to God through the atonement, he's made the way for everything. And so in that sense, healing had a cost and Jesus paid that cost in the atonement. So in that sense, yes. In another sense though, healing isn't the same thing, right? Like one of the things to, I think, think about is that scripture doesn't talk about all of our sickness being directly related to our guilt, right? But like, um, so in that sense, you, there, the Savior has different functions, and they're not necessarily the same. So, one of the examples I use a lot is from the Lord of the Rings when Aragorn, who's the king, you're supposed to be the king of Gondor, he fights all these battles, and then in the last book, he comes, he comes into the city for the first time as a healer, and he goes into the houses of healing and he heals. I think it's Mary, and um, and then he he heals the Lady of Rohan, right? And like, it's this big deal, and this old lady's like. Oh, the old saying said the the hands of the king are are the hands of a healer, right? Mm. And one of the things that you're supposed to get from that, what Tolkien was trying to get across was what makes a king is not just his sword, that he has multiple roles. And one of the roles that's absolutely necessary to really make him a king, the difference between just a warrior and a king is that the king has healing in his hands, right? And so in that sense, like you could say, in, in other ways, the healing of Christ is just a different thing. That Jesus is, on one sense, an atoning savior, and in another way, he is a healer. And the two are related, yes, but they're not the same function. And sometimes evangelicals or you know, like Bible believing Christians, they want to see everything through the metaphor of atonement. And I think sometimes that that limits our ability to see the breadth and the depths of the ministry of Jesus does. So, in that sense, I'd say be careful about saying that Jesus paid for healing his atonement. I'm not, that may not be the wrong metaphor. Healing isn't something you pay for. Healing is something you receive by the mm-hmm. therapeutic capacity of another, which is different than wielding a sword. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. And in one sense, healing would be open. Like the possibility of our healing is possible. It's possible because of the atonement, because that's where sins are forgiven and wounds happen because of sin <laughs> from someone else. Right. So, healing comes through our relationship with the Holy Spirit, mm. right? And we are not indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The healing spirit doesn't come to dwell within us until we have been saved, which is predicated on Christ's atonement for us, being received by faith, 
So in that sense, Jesus paid the paid for it, right? But in another sense, the healing presence of the Spirit isn't the same thing as the atoning work of Christ. Those are totally different. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on what you mean by pay for. Mm-hmm. That's all. Okay, that makes sense. All right, next question. With respect to friendships with non-believers, how do you know when it's time to shake off the dust when the person comes to be determined comes to be determined to follow their unbelieving ways, as in Matthew ten fourteen. I think this was in reference to when you mentioned how we we see friendship now currently as something that we can just we can just put people out to pasture when they're too much right. um, or they're quote unquote toxic. I think this is in reference to that. But yeah, specifically and this is like, well, doesn't Jesus say you're supposed to do that? Right, right. So okay, so one of the so let me put this in context for people. So. About, I don't know, 40 years ago, um, there began to be a movement in the church from simply proclamational evangelism that you should just tell people you come across about Jesus to friendship evangelism, that evangelism works best within the context of genuine loving friendships. And so, therefore, you should enter into new relationships with people in the, in the, through the mechanism of friendship and as friends share the gospel with them. Now, on one sense, that was an enormous breakthrough that really help people understand how organically and humanly the gospel is supposed to move from the heart of one person to another. In another sense, it's ridiculously foolish because friendship isn't that sort of thing, right? Like there are some like extroverted people who can go around being sort of friends with everybody in that they're very friendly with everyone and they remember their contact with them and so on, but they can't become the sort of friend that you depend upon, that you know deeply, that you, look into each other's soul that they're to quote the proverbs closer than a brother right so what we mean by friendship can be really variable right so in that sense like if you if you are fr- if you offer friendship and enjoy friendship with a non-christian i don't know that you ever shake the dust off your feet and just walk away from them friendship is a different thing than that in matthew 10:14 the specific focus is on the itinerancy that is people who are going around to different places to preach the gospel. And what Jesus is saying is, if you go to a place and you preach the gospel and they reject you, you shake the dust off your feet and say, look, I told you the truth and you just don't want it. And the reason I'm going to shake the dust off my feet and go somewhere else is because other people haven't heard. And it's my job to go around and make sure, let as many people know as possible. And if you're not interested and you reject this, I'm going to go to the next people. Does that make sense? And your guilt is, and shaking the dust off your feet is an indication that their guilt is on their own head right? They're guilty for not responding, not the proclaimer. So in that sense, these contexts are quite different. So I would say, yeah, there is a certain kind of relationship where you've shared the gospel with somebody, you've been kind to them, and they don't want anything to do with it. And as a function of time, you should just move on to other people and share the gospel with them. In that sense, you can shake off the dust of your feet. But I, I would be really careful about introducing the category of friendship into that, because if we hold the concept of friendship sacred, like I think we should, then the two are not related. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I don't think the Bible says you should only be friends with Christians. I think that you should have friends that are Christians. But if you just decide you can only be friends with Christians, I don't. I don't think that, that was ever really Jesus' intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the part of the question that says when the person seems to be determined to follow their unbelieving ways, that seems to me to get more at a question of how much are you then participating 
Yeah. Or allowing that or enabling that if you're their friend. Yeah, you're and, right. Because the word ways instead of the word beliefs is a difference. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, there's passages about that. Um, there's yeah, one passage Psalm about. One, for example, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, Psalm 1 talks about like standing in the way of sinners and walking in the way of mockers and so on. And, that, and it's like, look, if you do that, you're going to be like them. Mm-hmm. And so, I, yeah, on some level, somebody is going to be your friend. And part and parcel of that friendship is to participate in ways that Jesus doesn't just call unbelieving, but that are sinful, that are in mockery of the truth. Or what, then, yeah, there becomes a point where you're just kind of like, I'm, I'm not going to be part of this. Mm-hmm. And you just, you walk away. So, And you can still be friends with them and be honest about what you're going to do or not do and what mm-hmm. you think is right or wrong. And if they still want to be friends with you, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so some of it, I think, comes to boundaries and communicating who you really are and not going along with certain things as well. Um, okay, next question. Why was there a sawzall on the table on Sunday, as well as two logs, if I remember correctly? Yeah, so uh, it's yeah, it's a problem with time management, right? So um, on the third point, I wanted to make about... Um, a life, like a lifelong trajectory towards the virtues of devotion. One of the things that I wanted to say was that um, there, there are a number of relationships in the universe that are what you might call reciprocating, that move back and forth between two points. So the Trinity, for example, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal persons in the one essence of the Trinity, and they are relating back and forth between each other sort of equally, Right. And it's a reciprocating relationship. A relationship that you have with a spouse, for example, is you give to them and they give back to you and it moves back and forth, right? It's a reciprocating relationship. A sawzall, a sawzall is the is the company name for a certain kind of tool, which is called a reciprocating saw. That is, the way the saw works is, is that it moves the head of the saw back and forth between two equidistant points, right? It reciprocates between those two points. And because it has a blade, as the head moves back and forth between those points, it saws back and forth, right? And it does work. And the way you're set up as a human being in what the Bible calls the heart is that multiple human faculties are interacting with each other within the heart. So your conscience and your emotions and your deliberative thought and your soulish intuition and your um, the drives of your instincts, your desires, your um, the predispositions of your um, pre-existing experiences are all there, right? And the relationship of growing in integrity isn't just applying your deliberative mind, your thinking to everything and getting everything to submit to your thinking. Because sometimes your thinking is going to be just off, right? What ends up happening is, is that the work of Christ through the gospel has to come in and touch all of those different things. And all of those different things are interacting with each other in a reciprocating kind of way. They're relating back and forth back. So your emotions are relating back and forth with your mental processes, back and forth with your intuitions, back and forth with your past experiences. There's this reciprocating relationship, which both matures them as your heart and mind go back and forth and your instincts. And you're like, all that's kind of going back and forth and kind of learning from and taking from each other. And as it does that, it comes more into union with each other and they function together more seamlessly. And so you become more one person, right? Because part of what happens with sin is it breaks you apart into pieces. Now, in addition to that, it also makes you stronger because as each one of those faculties is weakened for some reason, 
in its reciprocating relationship with the other, it gets strengthened, right? So if your heart is strong and your mind is kind of going in a wacky direction, that interaction with your conscience and your instincts and your intuition and your heart, like your feelings, reciprocates back and forth with your mind, pulling your mind back in a healthy direction, right? If your emotions are going wacky, the reciprocating relationship of your conscience and your mind and your intuitions with your emotions that are going wacky pulls it back into a place of integrity with the rest of your internal faculties. And that reciprocating relationship between within the faculties of your heart, as they all kind of move around with each other, is doing a lot of emotional work, like a reciprocating saw. Does that make sense? But it's but it's because there's this back and forth, 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 back and forth relationship between all these different faculties. It is in in what is psychologists sometimes call the reciprocating self, that back and forthing that we're drawn together and we're interstrengthened in the faculties that make up our heart. And that action over time is part of what builds us up in psychological, emotional strength, resiliency, and therefore the capacity for spiritual perseverance and love. That makes sense. Um, That gets us into a little bit more of the content of the sermon. And we didn't actually have any more questions about the sermon. I think there was only one that was particularly tied to the sermon. So we want to spend some time talking about some more of the content that Nick, you didn't get to or some other things. Um, But Mm -hmm. this last week. So we're going from AMA to cutting room floor. Yes. Here we go. Um, Well, I guess this is, I do have a question that I'm going to ask you. So um, when we, last week we had a staff retreat and Nick led us through some devotional times and uh, it was based on the content of the sermon series about how these six parts work together. And we, he challenged us to think through what, what part that is weak in us. Um, and for me, it was actually that it was this week, the tending, the tending the fire, um, yeah. which is surprising to me. It surprised me because I, I've been a Christian for a while. I, I haven't really struggled with not wanting to have devotional times or not having devotional times in terms of literally sitting down and reading the Bible. Um, but I realized that like my intimacy with God and my, the wholeheartedness in that was lacking. And so I thought after the sermon on Sunday, I thought if I would have heard this sermon of even just a few years ago, I, I think I would have said, oh, I've got this part down, <laughs> but I don't think I do. And so um, Nick, could you talk more about some ways that we could identify if, even if we're reading the Bible or even if we're consistently going to church or even if we're doing the things, how we can identify if we still need to tend the fire in some way. Yeah. So, okay. So first of all, I just want to clarify something. I, I know this isn't a fallacy that you believe in, Jill, but I just want to make sure for the listener that when we say um, f- attending the fire of devotion, I, mm-hmm. I don't, that is not synonymous with Bible reading. Bible reading is, um, can be one right. very good way to engage mm-hmm. in private devotion but there's actually like probably dozens of ways to tend the fire of devotion to increase the flame. And um, I think one of the things you're getting at too is, is that you can actually read the Bible and not be right. tending the fire of devotion. I think I would have had that. Depending on how you're reading it. Right. I think mm-hmm. I would have had that fallacy. I am saying that like, I think if I would have heard devotion because of how it's been used in the Christian world, mm-hmm. and I've been a Christian for a while, of you have, you have devotionals, like right. you have devotion time. I would have thought I'm doing that even though this is a much bigger and more right. full 
picture of what that means. Yeah, that's that's really good. Yeah, so so I've been trying to distinguish this over the last three years at High Point between doing, quote, devotions, which is the formal action of reading your Bible and praying and maybe journaling or something like that, or reflecting or meditating, and doing and tending the devotion of your heart, doing that which is devotional, meaning increasing devotion or designed and done in a way as to increase devotion. And I've tried to distinguish between those two. Now, what, one of the things you're getting at, Jill, gets back to when you have more than one preacher do a series that one preacher prepared. So when I dumped the second message on Mike, the gospel foundation message, in my notes, I said, hey, cover these Christian externalisms by Paul Tripp. And like, you know, Mike just had to write the sermon. That, like, you just can't do that. You just, it, taking somebody else's notes and doing it. But in Paul Tripp's book, How People Change, he talks about how people lose the gospel. And what I would argue is when you lose the gospel, you lose devotion. Because you're not really going to God based on what he has done in Christ mm-hmm. anymore and by his spirit. You're now just doing something else. And so that's one of the reasons why the um, the primacy of the heart was first, then the gospel foundation, then tending the fire of devotion. It has to be in that order. You start with God wants my heart. How does he want to hold my heart to himself through the foundation of the gospel? By me being enveloped and taken into what God has done in him through Christ and now by his spirit in full salvation, right? And then you say, okay, now how do I then tend the fire devotion? Well, it's to receive the gospel in the heart, right? That's See how they're, they're reciprocating? They're going back and forth from one to two to three, from three to two to one. Does that make sense? And so. Um, so to answer the question, how do you make sure that, that you're ten- really attending the fire of devotion? I would say, go back to number two and go through these Christian formalisms, right? So are these, these, these Christian, um, misunderstandings of the gospel. So the first is formalism. So they're formalism, legalism, mysticism, activism, biblicism, psychologism, and socialism. Socialism is not the political ideology, but the idea that the good of the gospel is really in the social benefits of the church. Okay. So for example, you were talking about like, well, I did devotions, so I've got this covered. So that's formalism, right? It's the idea that if I do the thing, then I've got the, then I've got it, go- then I'm good, right? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, well, no, it, you've only got the thing if you do the thing in the way that builds devotion, right? So if, you re- if you're reading the Bible, let's say you're reading the Bible moralistically, God loves people who read his word, right? God has given his word to people lovingly. We have the word of God written in the scriptures. So, and God, sees us read them. He gave it to us to read. So by reading them, we please him and God likes to be pleased and likes those who please him. So he loves, likes and loves those who read the Bible. So I read the Bible. Well, I mean, there's a kind of a outside way that's true. I mean, God does love obedience and he enjoys to see us and it takes pleasure with us doing that, which is good, which in reading his word is good, but that's not really the point. The point is, is that his word is a message Right, and that message demonstrates, he, like, is meant to draw us to our taking pleasure in Him, not so much Him taking pleasure in us. Mm-hmm. So the point of re- of reading the Bible devotionally is to come to the Bible as God's written word, so as that we read it to take pleasure in God and to read it in such ways that it points us to God and what God has done, so that our devotion increases. And so you had so that brings us back to point one, the primacy of the heart. So you must read the Bible heartfully. Right. The point is to read the Bible, to see the good news in it about God and his 
the Father and his Christ and what he's doing through the death and resurrection of his Christ by his spirit and you in full salvation, right? And to do so heartfully in such a way as for it to increase your devotion. If you read the Bible that way, it, it's a wonderful way of growing in devotion and it is therefore then devotional. But if you read the Bible out of formalism or out of moralism or out of legalism, you, you know, like you have to read a chapter and then you journal for five minutes and then you pray for you know 20 minutes and then you're a good Christian. Like that kind of legalism is just, you can do that for a hundred years and you won't love God any more than you do right now. You'll, you'll love him less because what you'll love is your own performance of Christianity, not God in his gracious provision. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. But then also like mysticism creates a, creates a, a bad devotion. So like really just going to God for the emotional experience, but you're like, wait, isn't that literally what you just told us to do to go to God? for the emotional experience and i'm like it's sort of like the pendulum swing of the the other one right that's what it seems like right well here's what it does it 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 um narrows the heart to just emotion Mm. right so you're pointing the heart towards god well what is the heart well it's the soul and the mind and the feelings and the emotions and the past experiences and the conscience and the intuition and the deliberative mind all together right and so if you're if you're reading the bible devotionally if or if you're trying to seek god mystically devotionally you don't separate your mind from your feelings or your conscience from your feelings and that's often what happens in mysticism Mm. there's such a pursuit of an emotional high with god feeling absolutely loved or something like that that um the encounter with god is really just seeking one emotional high to the next which is actually infantilizing and it increases your immaturity rather than decreases it Mm -hmm. and so even though you're you're really seeking god in the long run, you're not actually increasing your devotion, right? It's like drinking a bunch of spiritual sugar. You get like this quick sort of like high, but then the crash is worse. And you actually you actually feel after you leave God's presence, so to speak, either literally you walk out of God's presence, right? Or, or you just don't feel it the same way emotionally like you did. You actually are worse off than you were before. So this is an example of in the short game, doing something good that hurts you in the middle game and the long game. Mm-hmm. And that's how mysticism can be bad. I, I mean, mysticism or seeking God's immediate presence or opening yourself to it fully and trying to keep in step with the spirit is part of Christian faith, right? It's not, mm-hmm. it's not talked about that much in the Bible as much as some people act like it is, but it's a real thing, like a real dynamic interaction with the presence of God and belief that he is with us is part of Christianity. Mm-hmm. But when used as a externalism, which is an emotional high and so on, it becomes very detrimental. And doesn't ultimately increase devotion. Yeah, and it seems it seems like, I mean, any number of these things have good elements and need to be held in tension with the other elements that are necessary for wholehearted devotional do- devotion. Mm-hmm. Um, the first, the first one, formalism, seemed really dependent on like the human performance, and mm-hmm. mysticism almost seems dependent on God's performance, like how you expect God to perform and show up. So that you can feel a certain way or know he's there or is that, yeah. is that it? Right. You know, in some ways you can kind of break these up into different, see, this is one of the reasons why it's interesting to talk about the heart and the heart's different faculties. Mm-hmm. Cause you can almost kind of break this up into different aspects of the heart. So formalism is sort of like the routine nature of the heart that I, if I do the routine, I'm good. And the human heart thrives on repetition and structure. We'll actually talk about that in a few weeks from now. And so you're like, I'm in the right structure. I'm doing the right stuff over and over again. I'm, I'm, I'm okay, right? Legalism is like the mental idea. I'm doing it right, 
right? So in some ways, legalism is the overworking of the conscience, right? That part of you that's like the, your moral center, that, that part gets to be the only one that talks. Well, I'm doing it right, so we're good. You're like, oh, that's maybe not the only, right? Mysticism is the emotions being everything, right? It's, I feel God, so we're good, right? Activism is, we're doing the right stuff that makes us a good person, so we're good, right? Biblicism is like, I'm learning the right information, so we're good, right? Psychologism is, I'm like, I'm healing in my past experiences and how those are affecting me. And like, my reactions to my surroundings are getting better, right? Like, so we're good, right? And socialism is, um, I'm socially enveloped in community and feel secure, so we're good. And in fact, all of those are getting at a different aspect of the heart. And all those are supposed to be mutually and reciprocating relationship with each other, coming into one whole integrity. So if you find yourself in one of those things and not all of the others, or really not, these are all isms, but like there's a good version of like having a spiritual routine is good. And like doing what's right is good, right? The good form of legalism and like seeking God's presence and his, his reality rather than just ideas is good. And doing what's right and just, right? The good form of activism is good. Right. And knowing the Bible and God's written word, like in your deliberative mind is good. All those are goods meant to have a reciprocating relationship to bring you to a devoted hole in the heart so that the heart is increasingly on fire for God. And, and there's more to you because all these different aspects are deepening and widening and strengthening and becoming a bigger unity. And as that happens, you're just more, there's just more to you. Does that make sense? But if you pick any one of them and you make that the absolute and then you drive that, to its illogical extreme end, you get these isms and you're like, well, I would never do that. Everybody does that. That's part of what the flesh does. Because your flesh doesn't want to die, it will take something good and use that good in which to hide sin in. But it it can't do it if that good is truly still good. It has to twist the good so that it's no longer a good, but it still looks like one, right? years ago there was this movie men in black where like this alien bug comes to earth and he kills this guy and literally takes his skin off and wears the guy's skin as like a human suit. So he doesn't look like a cockroach. Right. And like, that's what sin does with these goods. Right. It's like, it's basically like you've torn the living skin off of something and it's dead and you've put it over a cockroach of the flesh and sin. And you're like, we're good. And it's not good. That's a very powerful visual. Death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's really helpful. Right. And that's one of the reasons why you get so many people who come to Christian faith for a little while. They profess to believe, and then they're like, this doesn't work. Mm -hmm. They say stuff like that. Like, it didn't work for me. Christian faith doesn't work. I didn't feel anything. They they noticed that they weren't changing, but they didn't know why, right? And they think it's Christian faith. They think it is faith altogether, God's existence and all of that. And it's not. It's not. It was one of these other things. Their heart wasn't really being discipled and shepherded, and they got lost in one of these death suits, and it, it, it made their faith seem dead because their faith was dead. And then they were like, and then they thought the solution wasn't coming alive again in Christ. They thought the solution was walking away. Yeah, I've found that in the externalisms that I'm prone to, they're usually the the ways that the flesh will also make something that seems good into an idol of myself. It's something that I can do. I know I can do well. So Mm -hmm. like, I know that I can, I have a pretty strong will and that I can like make myself do a lot of things, even if I don't like it. So formalism is 
really great for me <laughs> because and legalism and legalism because and I'll show up and I'll do the thing. Um, right. But like, but that that means that I'm worshiping myself and not God because I'm not seeking Him in His fullness. I'm seeking what I can do myself out of my own strength. Yeah. Um, or, or you could say, kind of say it this way, I think, is that you are worshiping God um, by rejecting him. You know what I mean? Because there's no desire for momentary grace. There's no walking in the relationship with him. There's no recognizing that it has to be operative in your life at this very moment for there to be any true spiritual success. And yet, formally, you're worshiping him. You're doing all things, these things for him, right? And yet without him. And doing any kind of devotion for God without God is a really bad That's terrifying. Way to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good. And it's so sneaky of the enemy to end the flesh because we can think we're doing the right thing <laughs> and a good mm -hmm. thing. And it's leading us away from God. Okay. Nick, did you I know that because I help you with your sermon, that um, you did not get through all of your sermon on mm -hmm. Sunday. Do you want to talk about anything that you didn't get to? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I didn't really get to was that reciprocating relationship thing that I talked to okay. related to the Sawzall. Yeah. I think that, I think that that's important. I, I think in the two scriptures that I read, in uh, Romans 12, 9 to 15, and James 4, 1 to 7, I think I want people to see how pursuing um, devotion to God is meant to lead you to the emotion you're going to need for others. I think that, that people think they're fine because they don't realize how much emotion we need to give each other. And so they're okay with being emotionally flatlined because they don't realize how much others need from them nor how much they're going to need themselves. So like when Romans 12 says that we should keep up our spiritual fervor and never be lacking in zeal, it's going to say very soon after this, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, right? Or be joyful in hope, patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. Well, being joyful is an expression of emotion in relationship to hope, something you haven't received yet. Being patient in affliction and faithful in prayer are both markers of perseverance. You have to have the heart to get through, right? And what and what he's saying there very directly is, you're going to need that zeal and that spiritual fervor in serving the Lord, not just to be joyful in hope, but to be patient in affliction and faithful in prayer, right? If you share with God's people who are in need or you practice hospitality, both of these require the kind of sacrifice that comes from the emotional zeal of wanting to serve God. So for, for the apostle Paul, he's saying very directly, look, you need all kinds of full-heartedness to be a Christian, to be spiritual. Because it's full of sacrifice and pain and suffering and love and hope and joy and emotion, right? Weeping and mourning and rejoicing. And like one of the things, I mean, I've said before on this podcast that like for all the quote partying that people do um, and all the emphasis on dance music, nobody knows how to dance anymore and nobody knows what a party is for anymore. Right. Like there was this, I think it, who's the, there's this, there's this country singer. Um, one of her hits is late to the party. And she's basically singing about how like um, she doesn't mind being super late with her boyfriend because she just likes being with him and they're kind of introverts anyway. And they think parties are stupid. There's this line in the song where she says, um, 
you know, all these things ever come down to is who's leaving here with who. And she's right. Like most, most partying that isn't filled with some greater beauty that isn't like celebrating something sublime. That's really all it ends up coming down to is like, like a very visceral kind of reality and dances like that too. I remember like, like growing up as a younger adult before I was married and I like, I went to dance clubs with people every once in a while. I'd be like, yeah, I'll go to the dance club. And it, all that, all it was about was who was leaving here with who and who could have sex with their clothes on, on the floor until you decided and got drunk enough to, to decide. It was like the whole thing was just a visceral, like, um, display of temptation and sexual desire and, and, connection like like nobody was celebrating anything it wasn't it wasn't a party like there were no there are no parties like when i went to college i went to a couple frat parties kind of see what what was up i i never experienced the party there was never a party it was you pay money at the door you drink yourself into oblivion you dance around until you hook up with somebody and then you like hook up and go home like that's all there is and i remember thinking this is so heartless there's it's so soulless like nobody knows how to have a party and I like I I've noticed this that like people live by their emotions, and yet they they're so thin that they don't have the capacity to celebrate. There's no celebrations. People don't even celebrate at weddings, right? You you want to know that one some of the only places I ever see people really celebrate is at funerals, because there's something about funerals that gets us something really deep. Like people have to face reality like at a bigger level and they don't do it with reality because they just, they aren't capable of doing it, but it ignites a kind of sentimentality in them. And so they express sentimentality and sentimentality is at least groping towards something sublime because they want it to feel artistic. They want to feel like there's more meaning than just the flesh and the nervous system because the, the flesh and the nervous system just died. So it's, they're forced to like, see if there's like, is there any more to this that I believe in? And the funeral is the only place that forces that on people. Because mm-hmm. at weddings, you can still be visceral. Eat food, drink alcohol, go hook up with somebody. And I think the difference is that external, so in, at least in sentimentality, someone is looking outside of themselves to something right. bigger. And when right. you were talking about like parties or dancing has just come become someone following their emotions, but then sort of into not even doing the thing itself. I think people are following their emotions and then they don't have anything to do with it. And it leads to, I mean, it was like when you're talking about mindfulness in the sermon, it leads to, if there's nothing bigger than themselves, it leads them further into themselves, Mm -hmm. which then people are just trying to escape through getting drunk or the visceral, um, like flesh, like whatever we want to do with our flesh. Right. Yeah. And so then somebody like that, right, becomes a Christian and they read the Bible and they get to Romans 12, 9. And they, it says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And the way they read that is, oh, right. So, okay. You know, you have to be sincere when you love somebody. When you do things of love, it shouldn't, you shouldn't be fake. And then you hate what is evil. So you should, you should actually disapprove of what is evil, cling to what is good. So, right. Like you hold on to the good stuff. Right. Right. But that's, I mean, You've basically let the air out of these tires. I mean, what he's saying is love, like the fire of what love is, like this this deep passion for others and their well-being should come out of you sincerely, meaning it should really be there, right? And then what's evil, you shouldn't just disapprove of. You should hate it, like with passion, 
right? And then what's good, you should cling to like something that people are trying to tear out of your hands. You know what I mean? Like, like a whole armful of toilet paper at the beginning of COVID, you know, like just <laughs> you're running, you know what I mean? Like, and then he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Like, we, like all these words, we just like take down from a 10 to a one in our minds. Like what does be devoted to one another in brotherly or sibling love mean? What does it mean? It says, honor one another above yourselves. It's the next line. Really? Have you ever seen that? Like, it's pretty rare, right? Like all these things are like full hearted things. Like, can you imagine walking in a church and love is sincere? Love is present and sincere. People hate what is evil and they cling to what is good. And they are devoted to one another in brotherly love, like sibling love, right? That's built over a lifetime and they honor one another above themselves. Like they're always looking, like lift the other person up above their shoulders, right? And then they're never lacking in zeal and they keep up their spiritual fervor serving the Lord and they're joyful in hope and pain and patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. Like you start going through this stuff, practicing hospitality, blessing those who persecute you, blessing them and never cursing them and rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those. You like, you read that and you're like, oh my God, like literally, oh my God, dear God, I don't have a heart in my chest. Like the, I, there's none of that. There's none of that fire in me. And what the apostle Paul is saying is, because remember, Romans 12 is about your spiritual act of service, what your spirituality should be like. It's normative Christianity, and it is true humanity is this kind of full-heartedness. And my message to like Americans and like, like people in Madison is, listen, you cannot pursue Jesus for a lifetime and not pursue this kind of full-heartedness in Jesus. And we do. And it hides from us in this, these formalisms and these externalisms and these legalisms and biblicisms and activisms. And we miss, we lose what the gospel, what the truth, what Christ wants to do in us. And then when he, if this isn't done in us, he, he's going to do nothing through us. You know? I'm looking also at the James 4 passage. And just in case someone hears this in the podcast and reads it later, I want to ask you, about it because it sounds in tone very it sounds legalistic and it doesn't sound very fun <laughs> or happy so um but it's in God's word and i know that it's it's going to be consistent with what we were talking about so um it says submit yourselves then this is in verse 7 in chapter 4 submit yourselves then to God resist the devil and he will flee from you Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And then it, do- it goes into then what, how to, what to do after that. Like brothers and sisters do not slander one another, um, not judging one another. Um, so could you talk about how that's not moralism because it it does talk about us coming to God and us doing certain things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some ways this is very similar to Romans 12. It's just the negative version, Mm. right? Like it tells us to do a bunch of things, but then when you, when you read into it, it's emotional presumptions. You realize how emotionally serious Mm. and full hearted a passage this is, right? And so one of the things that Paul Tripp says in that book when he talks about those Christian externalisms is he says you need to have like a restorative relationship with the gospel and it's just real truths. And the first one, I think he offers five. And the first one he offers is like a re-recognition of the horrific depth of depravity. Like he's like, listen, you're never going to really embrace the beauty of the gospel 
if you don't recognize that like sin has gravity to it, right? So it, what he's the way he words it is the extent and gravity of our sin. So in order to understand the gospel, you have to start a, getting a grasp on the extent and gravity. So people have heard me talk about George McDonald's book, The Light Princess, where there's this there's this princess she's born and she like just floats up into the air because she has no gravity. And it isn't until the very, so she's like fun to be around and she laughs and she giggles and she, she likes some things and doesn't like other things. And she, you know, she meets this prince that she just adores, but she doesn't know how shallow her adoration is. And it's not until um, he dies to save her, like drown, he drowns in order to save her that she freaks out and throws away everything she'd taken her shallow pleasures in, in order to try to save his life. And to, to, she's like, she finds her gravity holding his, limp sacrificed body and um it's a beautiful beautiful story you should all read it to your children you should if you don't have it you should get it and read it um but the whole story mcdonald's trying to like show what it's like for somebody with no moral gravity to find their moral gravity and he does this great job of showing how like how she's pretty much a whole person just very playful and all these different things and yet there's nothing to her like when you actually press in to find any moral gravity in her, there isn't any. She's just selfish. All she cares about is herself and how she feels, and that's it. And it isn't until this event happens where she gets, she finds her gravity, right? But she also becomes a real person, and like that's that's an incredibly important point that like Christians oftentimes don't understand because we don't want to think about like the deeper things of how we become rehabilitated as human beings. We don't, we don't think of, we think of sin as the thing that's going to damn us morally, not the thing that sucked all the life on us functionally too. It's both of those things. Right. And so what Tripp says is like, um, if you begin to see the depth of your depravity, that should do something to you emotionally. When your knowledge, that is your deliberative mind understands how wicked you are, your intuitive mind senses it such that your conscience is quickened about how just how ugly it is, right? And all of your past experiences come rushing back into your consciousness, recognizing how you've misinterpreted all of them. For all your life, you've been interpreting all your past experiences about how you were the victim and how people treated you this way or that, and you did just the best you could. And then you realize, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. You cooperated with sin. You didn't deal with problems. You didn't stand up when you should have. You had no courage. You've been a coward all this time. You see what Romans seven calls wretchedness that we are both weak and wicked. Right. And all that comes crashing in on you. One of the things that that is meant to do emotionally is like to the late princess, it's that moment of seeing your ugliness. It creates, what it does is though it's a negative experience that makes you feel really bad. It like it, it, it like it, it's almost like it digs out a deeper well of emotion in you. And then when the gospel comes in, pulls out all that negativity, the, the shape remains. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's almost like, it's almost like you, there's all this like dead dragon carcasses and guts and people's skulls and stuff. And you had like, you'd put like a, like a five inch cement floor over it. And so all that was left of the wellspring of your heart was like the last eight inches. And you keep like pouring water in that and taking it out and pouring water in it and taking it out. And it's just shallow. And then somebody comes along and says, you know, this well was a lot deeper than this, but your denial and your unwillingness to see what you're really like has made it this shallow nothing. Right. And so you, somebody goes in there, he just goes in there, watch me. And he grabs a sledgehammer and he just destroys that thing. And all these like guts and like this 
incredibly horrific smelling stuff starts bubbling up into the water of your spirit. And you're like, you've destroyed the spring of my good water, right? Like you're, that's your first response is like, oh my God, like this is my water. This is how I drink. This is how I live. This is my life. And you just destroyed it. And they're like, yep, I did. And they keep pounding away at this false, this false floor until it's all mixed together. And you're like, oh my gosh, I have to go down in there and like dig all that out now. Right. And then he says, yes, but I'm going to help you. And like, he comes in and just like digs all this out and you just see it all kind of coming out. You're like, that's so gross. Right. Until it's all empty. And then you realize that the wellspring is 25 feet deep, not six inches. And it goes out to the left and to the right and the north and the south. And it holds 10, it can hold 10 million gallons, not eight. And you realize that's humanity. Your, your heart is supposed to be that big. And then now the pure water of the spirit gets poured in there. And God is filling up your heart with the good. But like, but the the breaking that false bottom and finding your gravity and the moral seriousness of realizing the horror of who you are and what you've been, that wretchedness of weakness and and wickedness, like that has to happen to find your gravity so that you can become a real person again. So that then that can be reversed by the Spirit of God. And that negative can launch you forward into this the beauty of grace that God has forgiven it and cleansed it and is healing it and is pouring new oil and life into it and making what was like the dead cistern of filth and death into a new spring of living water. You know what I mean? And like you, there's no shortcut to that. There literally is no shortcut. And so a failure to grapple with depravity by seeking to make people feel good doesn't work. And let me say one more thing on this and then you can jump in. That's why I fear when churches say God loves you so much and they want to move directly from God loves you to God wants to restore you. He has good things for you. Let's move. Let's just move forward. On one level, that can be very helpful. But at some point, I don't believe those people ever find their gravity in Christ until the false, the false floor of the spring of the heart is broken open again and like everything comes out. Right. And I think, cause I think part of healing is all that stuff coming out. It's got to all come out and you've got to see it for what it is, not just your weakness, but your complicity and your wickedness in it, you know? And then you realize you have nothing but grace. Either you are graciously forgiven or you die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a few thoughts of that came up while you were speaking. First is that even though like you had mentioned, you might look back on your past experiences and think before that you were always a victim. I mean, we are all victims and perpetrators. So mm-hmm. I think it, especially if you've been really wounded, it's really easy to see yourself only as a victim. Um, and that's the terrifying thing that you might have to grapple with is how you've been a perpetrator too. Um, right. And then in this passage, second in this passage um, of James 4, as you were talking about the mag- grappling with the magnitude of our sin, um, I think when you read it that way, you also would read the magnitude of what it means for God to come near to you or um, like the response of God in that. Um, and I think that gets at the mercy and the grace that you were talking about. Um, and then I thought I had another thing, but I don't remember right now. But yeah, what yeah. you said was so really I helpful. Think, I think if you take that stuff you're saying that I said and you trace it through this passage, mm-hmm. what what it's saying is like, like when it says, come near to God and he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. 
Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Right? That's a theological set way of saying what I put in a little story, right? Right. That like until you come to grips with the moral seriousness of your sin in the in disgusting nature of your weakness and your wretchedness, you can't really humble you won't really humble yourselves before the Lord. You won't lay down before him and recognize everything that you have is of his grace so that he can then lift you up. Right. And so, um, and what happens when you do see with moral seriousness who you really are, um, when you come near to God and he comes near to you, there's a safety there in which you realize your horror. And what I think one of the, I think one of the things that the church is when the church is like, look, God loves you. That's the first message. I think that's actually correct. Right. There's, there's this like, you, when you realize God will forgive you in Christ and then he comes to you, you draw near to him, he draws near to you. It's like coming into his operating room and being under a certain kind of anesthesia. You know you're going to live. Whatever happens, no matter how much it hurts, you know you're going to live. He's drawn near to you, but now he's going to take you someplace you do not want to go. And too many Christians think that God is going to heal them miraculously. Like they read Jesus healing people from physical ailments in the Bible. And like, he's just going to like touch you. You're going to pray. The Holy Spirit's going to touch you and all of your childhood trauma is going to go away. And that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. But the promise, the promise is there that usually yeah. that God is, no, I mean, I mean, the promise is there that it says that God will come near to you. So he is with right. you as you do all of that terrifying work. Um, yeah. And he's right there while you're the sobbing. Like yeah, yeah. That's the comfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you still have to do the sobbing. Right. Yes. And right? You, have you have to, to try to wash your hands and like, Realize how double-minded you've been. Even like even the parts where you think you were you believe in God, you believed in God and the world, God and the flesh, God and sin, God and the devil, and that it was always a blasphemy, right? Like and th- and once you see that, you're going to grieve and mourn and wail, and that is the right emotional response. You're going to find your spiritual and emotional and moral gravity, and you are instead of like being a flippant like laugher about stupid simplistic little clever things you're going to turn that laughing into mourning and your joy into gloom and in and in that moment you will have nothing to commend yourself before god you will humble yourself before the lord and his response is going to be that in that place by the grace of his promise he will lift you up mm-hmm. you'll, you'll you'll realize that everything's of grace his salvation is of grace you know that like to quote ephesians 2 that in you know while you are a child of the devil God chose in the person of Christ to die for you so that by grace and his sheer generosity alone, he would save you and make you alive from where you were dead. Like that is the gift, like resurrection. And it's not just a physical resurrection. It is a moral resurrection, you know, and Mm -hmm. in that place, like that place brings all the joy back, except a much deeper, more meaningful, fuller, full hearted, joy that has so much more integrity because it's a joy of conscience and deliberative mind and intuitive mind and emotion and past experience. That joy resonates and echoes in all of those faculties as you become one person and as God takes hold of your entire heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so, really good. Yeah. Um, we will put the passages we talked about. We'll put the Paul Tripp book and the externalisms uh, those notes in the show notes of this episode. So if you want to look yeah. into those, they will be there. Yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you, Nick. I think that's all we need to cover today. But you're welcome. I just I want to yeah. just affirm just very quickly to end yes. here because we're talking about sanctification and emotional sanctification. I don't want this to take anything away from the truth that we were sinners and Christ died for our sins. I don't want you to think that I'm trying to turn Christianity into a psycho into a psychology. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is Jesus is the Savior in every way. Mm-hmm. And that we are sinners dead under sin, under that penalty and deserve hell and damnation eternally. And Christ Jesus died for our sins. And we receive that forgiveness and justification by putting our trust in him. In addition to that, the king does more, right? He is also our liberator. He's also our healer. He's also our resurrector. And he does all these things. And to embrace full salvation, you have to start with confessing that Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification. You have to come to him on the moral plane first because our alienation is, is fundamentally moral. We have betrayed him and become cosmic traitors. And that has to be adjudicated before we can have the relationship of healing closeness and be his children and receive the glories of that. And so when I talk about these ways that it's like, God wants to work in our emotions and help us psychologically and heal us from our experiences and all of that stuff, that emotional sanctification is is predicated on a orthodox biblical understanding of Christ saving us from our sins through his death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. This is this does not lessen that. It's meant it's meant to create a full heartedness so that as your life goes on, you look back at Christ's death for your sins and it means ever more to you. Right? Because you mm-hmm. see the depth of your sin more and the grace of his salvation more, and therefore his atonement is more. But then you also see that that was the gateway to all these other parts of full salvation and the many the many faceted expressions of his love and wisdom in your life that he will be expressing to you and all his people for eternity. Mm-hmm. So it's Christianity is a many ands in full salvation, but it never it never takes away from the uh, the gospel of the cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that almost that brings us full circle to the first question, which was, what is paid for in atonement, and what you know, what is healed, right. and how is that different? Yeah, right. yeah. And one opens up the world of the other. Yeah. yeah. One last thing here is I want to plug the devotional for this series. Jill did such a great job with it. Now this is somewhat self-serving because she had my notes to do so, right? But she it's did true. a great job putting that together. I'm doing it as my own personal devotions for this series. You still have three more weeks left and you can go back into the devotions from the other three weeks to review the whole series. I really I really want to encourage you to get one of those if you haven't and print it out if you're just coming virtually or get it if you're coming to the church and work through that devotional to tend this fire of devotion that we talked about this week mm-hmm. and that we need to do the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you haven't started yet, and you're coming late to it, that's okay. I didn't put dates on it for all the people that that would bother. If I you started, started Monday. I started today. <laughs> yeah, you could start at any time. You could yeah. start. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. All right. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think that's all we have. See you guys soon. See you guys next Bye. time. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. 
We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.